Hello and welcome to the Max Moo Theatre and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. We're interrupting our twice a month schedule to bring you this special episode, a chat with playwright Mac Rogers. His plays include The Honeycomb Trilogy, Viral, and the forthcoming Universal Robots. Produced by Gideon Productions at the Sheen Center, June 3rd through the 26th. Tickets are only $25 and we will include a link for purchasing them on this episode's page at maxmoot.com. Mac is also well known as the writer behind the sci-fi serial podcast, The Message. We chat about that towards the end of the episode. Enjoy the show. So this is a little unusual for me in that I have not seen the show you have coming up, Universal Robots. Oh, Usually you... I see the show first and then do the interview, but I wanted oh, okay. to talk to you in advance so we can get the interview out there and uh, oh, let I'm people sorry. know I about the, the show. Script. Uh, oh, no, no worries uh, about it. Uh, um, but So tell me just a little bit about it. Oh, okay. Oh, are we recording now? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> um, okay, so first thing I want to say about Universal Robots that I want to make very clear is that this is not a production of RUR by Karel Chopek. Um, that is sort of the uh, most difficult uh, uh, sort of um, PR message to get out there about the show because um, uh, we, you know we'll, we'll put like a social media posting up about it or something and and sometimes we'll get some people back saying oh I love that I read mm-hmm. it in college mm-hmm. or yeah, I read it in high school or whatever um, uh, but it's sort of hard to explain what it is in relation to RUR because it wouldn't exist without RUR. Um, I had, uh, uh, when I started properly moving into being a more genre-oriented playwright uh, back in, uh, I guess, about 2005, I um, I decided, well, it might be a good idea to, to actually adapt the, you know, the original science fiction play, although Chopic wouldn't have thought of it in those terms at all, um, but the play that, you know, that, that introduced robot to the, to the global language, to the global culture, and um, so, so I bought it at a, at a, at a dollar, so I bought some translation, um, and I read it, and here's the thing, is like, um, uh, for like, for like your, like, your standard uh, nowadays type uh, um, um, like Doctor Who or Battlestar Galactica or, or something or genre fan who is used to like some big intense emotions you know if you, if you, if you grew up reading you know uh, uh, if you grew up reading Ursula Gwynn or if you uh, um, uh, if you grew up reading Octavia Butler something like that if you're used to intense emotions uh, uh, sort of alongside your, sci- your, your, your world changing science fiction um, uh, you're not going to get that from RUR. RUR is, uh, the, the, the real surprising thing about it is how goofy it is. Mm-hmm. The predominant tone is goofy, uh, because Chopic didn't think that he was writing a volcanically emotional science fiction, you know, world shattering epic. He thought that he was writing sort of a gentle satire, a gentle allegorical satire, you know, uh, uh, uh poking fun at certain thing, you know, tropes of the times. And so, all of the characters, the characters were actually quite hard to uh, invest in. Not a failure on Chopic's part. He wasn't trying to make. They're very broadly drawn types, and um, uh, and exposition is sort of handled in kind of a really goofy, perfunctory way um, after uh, after the robots have been. Um, have been developed and then they're uh, uh, they're turned into soldiers at one point. Uh, I guess the decision is made to turn them into soldiers, and then in the next scene, someone says, "But don't you feel sad that the robots went and caused all those wars?" And you're sort of reading, it going, "Hold on, wait a minute. Um, I think we skipped some steps. Like, can we see that part?" Uh, or or um, the, the 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 woman Helena who shows up to the Universal Robotics factory um, uh, and and basically convinces one of the science one of the scientists there to give 
give them emotions. There's no discussion of how that might happen um, uh, because, uh, again, that was not Chopik's interest. He was trying to move on to the allegorical uh, implications. But the play builds to a absolutely terrific humdinger of a, of a climactic scene um, that uh, involves the last human alive after the robot rebellion. Um, uh, the robots desperately need this human to uh, uh, sort of explain something about their making, but uh, but this guy, this laborer, uh, who they've spared because he's a blue-collar laborer, he doesn't know how to... Um, he doesn't know the answers to these questions, and there's kind of a really powerful scene where it looks like where it looks like life on Earth is, is going to be wiped out. Uh, he's persuaded to cut open a robot to try to see if he can figure out how it works. And then there's, in the corner, while all this is going on, is a, there's a, um, a male and a female robot who are un, uncommonly gentle and tender and sweet in their emotions and clearly very interested in each other in a certain way. And the scene builds to a couple of really extraordinary lines of dialogue that I'm sure vary from translation to translation to the point where I'm not sure if the ones that I used actually exist in any single translation. But the scene contains two extraordinary lines of dialogue um, where the robot Radius tells the two lover robots it is better to live than to die. And at one point, one of the two lover robots says to the laborer, we belong to each other. They're two sort of extraordinary lines of dialogue in an extraordinary scene. And so I thought, well, okay, I don't want to adapt this specifically. The, the whole rest of the play, while I totally salute its importance and totally salute what a giant Corel Chopic is, I'm not, you know, whether the play was my cup of tea, I know where I am in the pack and I know where Corel Chopic is in the pack. I'm not, I don't have any illusions about that but uh, uh, but I was like I'm not, I'm not interested in writing a play that's like the rest of this play I want to write a different play that will lead up to this amazing scene that will recontextualize this amazing scene in a really really emotional way so I started researching Chopik's life and um, uh, and it was fascinating um, you know I discovered that you know he, he uh, this, around the exact same time that he was a playwright, he was he was a journalist, he was a columnist, he was a prominent, you know, uh, a public figure in the fledgling new Republic of Czechoslovakia, and kind of remarkably, he was a close friend of the president Tomas Masaryk, um, who. Uh, um, you know, was basically they they, they, sh they had a lot in common. They also they also had a lot not in common. They had a big age difference. Masaryk was much older. Masaryk was a devout Christian. Chopik was really really not. Um, but they 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 saw eye to eye on a lot of stuff. Basically about the idea of sort of taking like like a, like a middle road between communism and right wing nationalism, sort of more of a center leftism maybe that that um, uh, that prizes humanity individuals um, working towards the you know the common good above above philosophies that are supposed to be one size fits all that apply to everybody and and Chopik you know incurred a lot of ire from from the communists and from the, the right wing and so uh, I was like this is really fascinating I found out his brother Joseph uh, uh, invented the word robot. He was looking for, um, Chopik had the idea for RUR, but he, was, he didn't know what to call the robots. He was considering calling them uh, uh, drudges. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, Joseph suggested kind of resurrecting this archaic Czech word, uh, robota. And, and, uh, and, and that's where uh, the word robot came from. And I was so fascinated at this whole like sort of artistic circle that Chopik belonged to um, uh, and his connection to the government. I was like, well, okay, okay, okay. All right, what if... Now I'm finally getting the answer to your question. What if somebody saw his play about robots and said, you know what, that thing in your play, I invented it. They, they, they bring it into the cafe where he met every Friday night, you know, with, uh, or sometimes at his house, but with, with, with like a lot of 
prominent Czech artists brought in, brought a robot to him and said, we've actually invented this. Um, uh, because if that happened, if that ha- had happened in real life, Tropic could have theoretically taken that invention directly to the president of the, of, of the country. And then, again, then, so then my brain really started raising, what would have happened if Czechoslovakia, the Republic of Czechoslovakia, the short-lived nation right after World War I, what if they had invented robots uh, and how uh, how would that have changed the 20th century? So uh, Karel Tropic is one of the main characters of the play. Uh, I've changed the brother to a sister, Joe Josephine, um, uh, and uh, and the two of them, you know, bring this invention to Masaryk, and it completely changes the world in all kinds of ways. Um, we actually have Rossum, the inventor of the robots, in the play, uh, uh, who's, who 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 never appears in RUR. That was another thing. It was like, everyone's like, oh, Rossum's a genius. Rossum's a genius. I, I, I'd love to meet. Rossum, you know, uh, so it's like okay, Rossum's got to be in the play. You got to have the you got to have the inventor, um, and uh, some of the robots from the play from from RUR they retain the same name, they retain the same basic function in this play. Uh, so the events of Tropic's life and the events of RUR start to meet and, and go in a completely new direction, a new alternate history direction. Um, Several key lines of dialogue are retained from RUR. As I said, that finals, the final scene of, of Universal Robots and the final scene of RUR bear a close resemblance to each other, but have some big, significant uh, context changes uh, that, uh, that I don't want to spoil overly. Um, uh, but it's... Uh, um, but I'd say there's there's probably less overall Chopic dialogue in this play than there is, say, Hamlet dialogue in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, there's there's most of it is ninety eight percent of the play is new dialogue, uh, but at the same time it couldn't exist without RUR. So it's basically. Uh, Probably what I should have said at the beginning of the answer to this question is uh, it's, it mashes up Karel Chopic's life with the events of RUR and imagines how the 20th century would have changed if robots were invented in a small country in the middle of the century. Do the moral findings, conclusions of the play mirror the original, or are you going in a different direction with the impact of the creation of robots? Um, well, part of the problem is uh, what, what what draws me to writing plays is 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 very often subjects in which I I, I sort of don't have a, a moral conclusion and I kind of want to explore it. Sure. Um, uh, it's very interesting to have this play sort of uh, being mounted in a in a in a new production at this time, because as you'll see from the opening scene. Uh, the, the opening scene involves a big angry argument in the cafe, the, the Friday Circle, where Tropic uh, would meet with prominent Czech artists and intellectuals. Um, I, I have, there's a highly fictionalized version of a, of a writer named Václavák, who is a lep, hard left-wing communist who believed in revolution and, uh, and who has a big argument, who, who in real life did criticize Chopik for being such a, you know, one-day-at-a-time incremental person. Um, and they have a big fight about which is better, you know, incremental change that, that, that makes sure it takes care of individuals and revolutionary change. This is like, you know, the, the whole current order is corrupt and needs to be swept away. The, because it's a funny thing. I first wrote this play in 2000. 2007. Um, I've done every. I've done a significant number of rewrites uh, for the, for this production. Um, but 
there are some elements of it that are going to look like I wrote it recently and that I'm having fun with inside jokes and it's completely unintentional. Wow. Uh, there's one bit about insects where that everyone's going to think that I'm like making a smarmy Kaufman-esque joke about the honeycomb. I swear I wrote those lines in 2007. <laughs> um, but, but there's an argument at the beginning uh, of the play that is going to really feel like I'm commenting on Clinton versus Sanders. Um, wow. that, uh, the, the whole, because um, sort of the, the, I mean, okay, well, there's like sort of the really awful arguments that have been going on, but at the highest level of that argument, of the Clinton versus Sanders argument, is is two ideas that I'm very sympathetic to uh, on both sides. The idea of, like, look, we've got to grow up. Uh, 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 the only way change ever happens is incrementally through a series of borderline unbearable compromises. We inch forward a, a, a bit at a time. We work with people that we don't agree with. We make temporary alliances, and that's that's how things get done. Could everyone please just grow up and recognize that, pretending that that's not how things work won't make that not how things work and then on the other side is the revolutionary who says oh okay you know what that's that's cool that you think that that's so grown up and mature and 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 worldly wise but while you're making incremental change while you're changing a step at a time as for the long period of time that that takes during that time real people are suffering real people are dying uh all kinds of terrible things are going on the people who are able to counsel patience, the people who are able to counsel incremental change are the people not being hurt by the day-to-day. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I, for example, am one of the people not really being significantly hurt by the day-to-day. I, I, I have a pretty comfortable life. Um, um, so it's very easy for me to say that incremental change is the way that it has to be. People who are in a state of crisis right now and who can see all kinds of forces of power right now holding them down will be like, well, I actually want everything to change right now because I'm suffering. People I know are suffering and dying. You know, my, my children are suffering. Um, uh, why should I have to wait for you to do a series of carefully calculated compromises? I have huge sympathy for both sides of that argument. Uh, uh, and uh, um, it, was, it, it was really hard. For, I have have not been able to be a strong partisan in the Clinton versus Sanders. Um, so the play, to a certain degree, explores that question. Now, that doesn't make me prescient in any way. This question keeps coming back. It might. It mm-hmm. might. <laughs> well, I mean, this question keeps recurring right, throughout history in different forms. Yeah, but... Uh, but it happens to be one that's being talked about a lot right now. Um, yes. um, uh, it'll be interesting for the play to kind of go up. It's sort of, you know, what will almost certainly be the, the, the f- f- sort of fiery conclusion of that that it's all probably going to sort of uh, shake itself out in June uh, uh, when things finally uh, 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 resolve with that with the convention and moving into the general election but I don't but because I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know what's right because I'm I really feel for both sides it was a big driving force of the play and the idea with okay the idea is that Chopic, the Chopic character in the play, I wanted to explore step by step how a guy goes from being a middle of the road, let's take this a step at a time, let's make sure all people are taken care of as best as we can, let's remember that no one political solution works for everybody, let's remember that uh, that odd alliances are needed. How does that guy move step by step into being fanatically dedicated to an idea that's got some significant flaws to it? And but, that's the evolution of the character in the play. It, within the play, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have no idea if the real life Chopic would have would have gone this route but what if it what if a technology was brought along that sort of seems like well i could actually short circuit all these problems all the um i could get past all of the uh um 
all of this, like, you know, uh, 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 you know, what are we going to do about the underclass? What are we going to do about uh, how are we going to have economic justice for everyone and still get all of the kind of grungy labor that has to get done every single day in society? Uh, how, how do we solve that problem? Because tons and tons of work just has to get done every day to keep the world moving. And tons and tons of people have to agree to not live beautiful lives of artistic inspiration uh, 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 or, or, or travel or, or mysticism or whatever. Lots and lots of people get to have almost none of that because they have to do the stuff that keeps the world going. And um, uh, so, so um, what if an idea came along where you're like, I, we could solve this in one go. We can create these creatures that can do all this stuff. Now we have to be very. The one one thing you see throughout the play is that Chop, the Chopper character, is constantly trying to enforce regulations that keep the robots from. They keep them at a certain level of resembling humans, but no further. Mm-hmm. That they've got, they, they, it's very important that they not be human because if they are being human, they're being subjugated. They're, they're working for nothing. They're doing a, uh, so it's like, uh, but the problems keep coming up with this. Uh, uh, a body that is well suited to doing human labor is a body generally that has arms and legs and, uh, and it, it looks like a human body, can do similar things to a human body. Um, uh, it, it's got to be kind of human looking so it won't freak people out. Um, uh, and then in a really pivotal scene in the play, the idea is brought up that like they, ro- robots can't work together in large numbers, especially in industrial settings unless they know not to damage each other, or they, or unless they know how to not damage each other by accident. Well, how are they going to know that? Okay, well, number one, they've got to they've got to have some kind of sensation that they feel when they're being damaged. Number two, they've got to be able to recognize when other robots are feeling that sensation. Uh, and that brings us back to what I was talking about a little bit before, how in R.U.R., Helena says, oh, can't you just give them emotions? Um I was like, okay, I want to think, how actually would you just give them emotions? I mean, obviously, I don't know the technology at all. I'm an idiot about technology. But <laughs> but most emotions can be traced back to pain and empathy in some form. Um, a lot of positive and negative emotions. I was like, okay, well, what would be involved in giving robots empathy? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, actually pain and empathy are absolutely essential for productivity as well as they're as well as being essential for humanity um, uh, that making them better workers more or less requires making them more human I, I didn't want to cheat any steps I really wanted this play to follow step by step how the perfection of the robots making them better and better at their original their originally conceived role in society would take them all the way to being sentient humans um, so uh like i guess in terms of like what what does the play what the play's conclusion about robots is is like because in the course of this play humans do a lot of bad things to robots robots do a lot of bad things to humans um and uh um i hope that the play was doesn't overly sort of take a side in 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 that aspect um uh, but it uh, one one advantage we have over the Honeycomb trilogy is we can actually have the robots on stage way more than we could have aliens on stage in the Honeycomb trilogy, um, uh, and uh, but also I guess it's sort of like Chopic, you know, I guess the plays Chopic wasn't wrong to try to do what he could do. It's not wrong to try to find ways to make for technology to to make life easier, but I think you have to be careful not to allow technology to sub in for a one-size-fits-all philosophy that a radical or a revolutionary might espouse. The Chopic starts to see, like, sort of technology as the universal solution to all of the problems, 
um, and that can be that can begin to function exactly like uh, uh, like a creed that's supposed to apply to everyone, but in fact hurts large numbers of people that it's applied to. Um, I think I think people will take away different sort of messages from it, um, but I think it does share with Tropics Play. To t- bring it back to your question, I think it does share with Tropics Play um, a feeling of you can't really cheat the fact that a tremendous amount of drudgery work has to be done in society and a just society will look for the best way to take care of everyone, try to make the happiest possible lives for everyone with the recognition that uh, all that work does have to get done. And ultimately it has to get done by people. Um, and, and how can we best take care of all of our people uh, uh, uh without hoping for utopia, mm-hmm. but for a better life. What led to the remount of the play this year? A couple of things. Um, partly was that um, part of the, uh, of the impetus was the Sheen Center itself, where we're doing the show. The Sheen, um, they, uh, they asked to see, uh, I think a couple of folks from the Sheen Center saw the Honeycomb Trilogy and were interested in working with us. They asked to see what scripts that we had, you know, whether in development or from before. And, um, uh, you know, they, and they have, um, uh, they have a, a, a Christian, I mean, they, they don't always do Christian programming, but some of the right. people who run it are affiliated with the Archdiocese. With the Archdiocese. Yes, exactly. So most of my plays are probably not a good fit there. Well, um, that's uh, <laughs> one of my questions. Is, uh, I'm curious to know how this play does fit in there. Um, it's interesting because, uh, well, first of all, of all my plays, just because I was sort of writing it in this uh, um, sort of, I don't know, sort of period feeling of like trying to make it sound a little bit like uh, a Corel Chopic play. Um, um, there's a little cursing. There's almost no cursing. Actually, no, I think there's zero cursing. Oh, wow. Okay. Actually, I think there's no profanity. Because I just, yeah, like, a high school did this play one time. Okay. Um, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, so there's no profanity. Um, there are elements of sexuality, but um, not handled in. Uh, uh, quite as graphic a way as perhaps other plays of mine. Um, and there is a strong religious element to the play uh, that I, uh, uh, despite the fact that I myself am not uh, a religious man, I felt a very strong responsibility to honor the story of President Tomas Masaryk, who mm-hmm. was a Christian and whose Christianity led him to like sort of be, you know, a person who really wanted to stand up for all people. Czechoslovakia wanted to, um, I mean, he definitely had to do some some bad things, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, holding together, a, holding together a new country. You're definitely going to be ordering murders, but uh, uh, the the um, uh, but he's but he was, you know, his Christianity drove a lot of his a lot of his. Um, Actions and he and Chopic were, were able to be friends despite this difference in them because it seems clear, you know, from, from the reading that I've done about the two of them, that Chopic perceived that Masaryk's Christianity drove him to want to do the same things in life that Chopic wanted to do in life. That his faith, his faith and Chopic's principles both led them into wanting the same sorts of actions implemented in the world. And um, so uh, I, I basically wanted to try to like. Um, I wanted to try to depict Masaryk's Christianity and how it leads to his decision-making, how it informs it. I wanted to treat his his Christianity with tremendous respect. Um, and I wanted to see the, what that bridge was between them. And throughout the play, the play, the play never forgets that Masaryk is a devout Christian. Um, the play never has any other character belittle him for it. Um, and, uh, and, 
and it's and he's never in any way exposed to be fraudulent in any way spiritually. And then the play itself overall takes the shape of um, of a annual um, ritual that almost feels religious in its overtones. Uh, it's it's very hard to explain um, uh, without seeing it. But the f- the further the play goes on, the more you realize that what you're watching is not, not so much a conventional drama, but kind of a ritual, kind of a pageant that is done as a form of um, uh, 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 done as a form of almost like a global confession, um, uh, a, a kind of global atonement, a kind of cultural atonement. Uh, so that appealed to the Sheen Center, and are they a producing partner? With Gideon Productions, your own theater company on this? That is correct. Yes, on this production, they are. The, uh, 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 I don't know exactly how it's going to be built in the program, but they're. Uh, but they, yeah, but they are. They are functioning as a producing partner for us. They made it possible for us to uh, produce in the space, um, uh, 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 and um, and have been extraordinarily helpful. You know, in terms of uh, of, of marketing and this and stuff like this. Um, uh, I suspect that this play, despite not being a full on Christian play, uh, I think they probably read it, it as like, well, okay. We'll look for maybe we'll look for more stuff down the road, but this is the best we're going to do in terms of downtown New York theater right now because I imagine they see all kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, I, I think that if you can watch it as a Christian and get a lot out of it, but I don't think that's remotely a uh, a, a requirement. I had some inter- an interesting conversation with uh, some Jewish folks who saw the play uh, a number of years ago and, and talked about um, what they perceived as sort of its uh, sort of the Jewish aspects of one scene of it uh, um, hmm. um, uh, that which was really uh, fascinating fascinating to hear about it so it's sort of in a way uh despite not being tremendously intended on my part it's probably the most uh, uh religious in structure play that i've ever written despite my i myself not being a religious man so you mentioned that your production of the honeycomb trilogy led to this play and i'm curious to know what led to your remounting of the honeycomb trilogy well a, a big part of it is just that in the last couple of years um the audience for my plays, the audience for Gideon Productions plays, has, has just grown tremendously. Um, How so? Basically, it, uh, it start. I guess uh, it, it's partly it's been incremental, and then it started uh, uh, happening faster. Um, when we did the Fringe, we started building an audience when we started doing the Fringe Festival in 2005. We had really tiny crowds before that. But with the Fringe Festival, you can start to get reviews for your shows. Uh, you can start to get more. Uh, attention, um, uh, but we started. So we started building some notice with those, uh, and that sort of built to a point where they did a um, Gideon produced a play of mine viral at the 2009 Fringe Festival, and that really kind of um, caught a, a lot of attention enough to the point where we thought that we could do, we could sort of. Um, sort of leave the comforting embrace of the Fringe Festival, which is not easy. It feels very, very comforting and uh, to be there um but we was like okay, let's let's roll the dice on something bigger that we do independently uh and then that idea ended up being the honeycomb trilogy in 2012 um which was i i mean i couldn't believe my co-producers went for it um uh at that time it wasn't written i just said guys here are the five ideas i have replaced they were like that one they didn't they didn't even let me say what the other four were i described the honeycomb trilogy first and they were like that one this is in 2012. Well, this would have been actually in late 2000. This conversation I'm describing would have taken place in late 2010 uh, uh, when we were figuring out what to do next. Because uh, um, right after uh, Viral, uh, my wife Sandy and I got married in 2010. That, and uh, that kind of um, uh, 
obliterated any chance of doing a production in 2010. So we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for 2011. Uh, but we, we didn't end up doing anything in 2011 because we basically spent 2011 developing the Honeycomb Trilogy mm-hmm. over the course of a series of readings at Judson Church. Um, and the Honeycomb Trilogy was by far... That sort of moved things up another level for us across the board in a number of respects. Uh, for the first time, we... Um, uh, uh, we, we, we sort of transitioned into doing more fuller productions where we were like, uh, we're like, okay, we brought in designers. We were in a space that we didn't have to clear at the end of every show. It was like, okay, let's do this intricately. And over the course of 2012, we put together a design team that we have stuck with ever since. Um, uh, 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 Jordana directing the place. Uh, Jordana had been directing before, but then um, uh, uh, my wife Sandy Yachlin did the set designs, um, um, and uh, um, uh, Amanda Jenks does the costume designs. Jennifer Lynn Wilcox the lighting design, and uh, uh, Jeannie Travis uh, uh, does the sound designs uh, for us. And um, uh, we've had uh, Stephanie Cox Williams doing props and effects, and Montserrat Mendez doing uh, 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 props as well for us. So we basically, since 2012, been sort of putting together a design team Gideon Productions while not valuing actors any less actors are a real linchpin of what we do we transitioned a bit from being an actor oriented company into being kind of a design oriented company so our plays started looking really different they started really kind of feeling very different to go and see uh, I, I mean a big part of the I, I had the humbling but it's only sort of humbling when it's your wife I sort I had the experience of when people sometimes when people come out of plays they would talk to me about the set before they would talk to me about the script uh-huh. actually it was really kind of all pluses because I'm one of those neurotics if I hear a compliment for myself my inner ego egomaniac loves it but I also have all these neuroses on top of it like bad Mac bad Mac (laughs) if you start believing compliments you're sunk or whatever so I have to try to like minimize it in some way compliments for Sandy put me over the moon that's like compliments for Sandy are my favorite thing to hear but it was kind of amazing how how she just sort of roared out of the gate as a scenic designer. Just just bam, her very first one for Advancement, the first part of the Honeycomb trilogy, uh, and then that that set kind of got more fascinating as the trilogy went on. Um, we, 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 like, but really uncannily, right right off the top, like my first play was not as good as her first set design, um, and she's very very impatient with her talent and very much wants to try something more difficult, more challenging every time um, to the point where she actually has almost no basking ability whatsoever. <laughs> I About once per show at some point, I'm like, could you please just... Um, I'm sorry, could you please just look at the thing you made and listen to a few of the compliments and kind of just like glow for for 60 seconds? And then you can go back to, you know, all the things you wish you'd done better. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's not her style at all. She's really, okay, what's the next thing and how am I gonna, how am I gonna do a better job next time? But to, uh, sort of to, to, get, uh, uh, to get back to your question, like what changed over the course of that as the as we sort of started doing a, a, a presenting a more complete package of plays, um, and as we got more confident in the branding of what we do, you know, we do genre theater. As people started to have a better sense of like what they were going to see if they went to go see a Gideon Productions play, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, the, the audience started building. It's it whenever you sort of have a combination of sort of like a steady rise in quality and a steady rise in sort of I guess what I'm going to call for lack of a better term a branding promise, um, uh, people. But people start to think, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a good time, and I know what kind of good time I'm gonna have. Then it's then you can start building an audience 
faster that way. And we've sort of seen steady sales escalations. Uh, uh, I mean, nothing like what a big theater company would do, but like we've been seeing steady sales escalations as we've been moving through our productions uh, up to the, to the point where now this one um, uh, we're seeing, you know, the best pre-sales we've ever had. And um we're seeing interest from more quarters than we've ever, I mean, a few years ago, we wouldn't have had, you know, the Sheen Center like reaching out uh, uh, to us specifically just because they wouldn't have known we existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And uh, so, um, so going hand in hand with that is sort of a feeling that uh, uh, some of these plays that, that particularly connected well, um, we sort of wanted to have a chance to show them in front of this larger audience, in front of this heightened industry attention, heightened media attention or whatever. Um, uh, and because I, I'm an egomaniac, like I said, and I think all of my <laughs> plays are, are absolute genius. And that, that, uh, Wallace on had a great line where he's like, he, he, he had a play come out. He said, I was stunned the next morning when they hadn't named the paper after me when I woke up. <laughs> But I'm aware that the rest of the world does not share my my view. The rest of the world likes some of my plays and likes some of the other ones less. Um, and and I have to pay attention to the response. Um, and I have to, it, and we, which is challenging in the social media era when people sort of like you know you sort of see a lot of free floating comp- compliments in cyberspace. But you get you can be very good at reading between the lines. Sure. Um, and you get very good at reading individual conversations, and you get very good at sort of reading a whole set of tea leaves across the board. And there is no doubt that. Of the, all the plays that I've written and put on uh, uh, since I started doing plays in New York in 2000, that there are three that connected way more than any of the others. That's uh, Viral, that's the Honeycomb Trilogy, and that's Universal Robots. And Universal Robots connected in, in a major, major way in the workshop production we did in 2009, and then the, the remounting Manhattan Theaters was produced, uh, directed by Rosemary Andress. And, sorry, the, the workshop was in 2007, the remounting uh, uh, was in 2009. Um, so I wanted to, I was always on the lookout for an opportunity to do the play again, but after a certain number of years passed, um, you know, I sort of became aware of that it's, it's really hard to kind of recapture lightning in a bottle, you know, um, it, it, and also, uh, it's like, it became a thing where like, you know, I, I didn't think, and it was also some members of the original cast have moved to other States. There was no sort of no question of reassembling the original cast. Uh, and plus in the, in the time since the last production in the time since the second production of universal robots in 09, uh, I've de- sort of developed this, this team, uh, Jordana and the design team that, um, have sort of really reshaped what my plays are like. And I sort of, sort of wanted to completely reconceive universal robots for this design team, for the larger audience we have, for all the people who didn't see it before, which now probably accounts for, you know, two thirds of the people who come to see, uh, my plays. And, you know, uh, uh we, so we, we basically were de- decided, you know, we're going to s- just sort of reassemble this from the, from the ground up. I'm going to do some rewrites. We're not going to try to make this in any way a remounting of the 2009 production. We're going to make it the version of Universal Robots that the new Gide- the, the post-2012 Gideon team would make, um, um, where basically once rehearsals start, the script is out of my hands. It sort of stops becoming a Mac Rogers thing and starts becoming a Jordana Williams thing. It starts mm-hmm. becoming Jordana and and the design team. They are really sort of become the auteurs of it. And I wanted to sort of see, you know, what they would do with it. Um, uh, and um, and that's it's, and so we we brought back the Honeycomb trilogy with almost the exact team intact. But this time we wanted to try something uh, really different and new with this play that had been done twice before and, 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 and kind of try to take it in a new direction. 
So I want to go way back. Uh, where are you from? Well, I, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I don't remember it at all. I was only there for like two years. Um, what I remember is Greensboro, North Carolina. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I grew up and I moved there. I was a really little kid, my family, uh, and I grew up there and um, um, and had very nice childhood like the worst it's so funny the perspective you get on your childhood and adolescence when you get older uh, there was definitely a time when i would have described my childhood and adolescence as quite difficult uh-huh. uh, it was really not quite difficult I, I i kind of see as i've as i've gotten older as i've met more people as i've talked to more people what did your parents do when you were growing up um my father uh, was an internist, a physician. Uh, uh, he's, he's, he's alive. He's my father, he's, uh, but he's retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he, um, uh, uh, my mother uh, 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 has been. Uh, well, she's she's done a number of different things. She's spent a lot of uh, of my childhood sort of. Uh, 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 finishing a, an amazingly complex dissertation for mm-hmm. uh, uh, her English literature degree, uh, and she's taught some, and she's also worked as a registered nurse, and she's also worked in public health a good deal. Uh, both of them are uh, voracious readers, uh, and both of them are very gifted writers. Um, uh, uh, my mother is an enormously gifted uh, poet who's actually won a number of competitions based in North Carolina. It's extraordinary poet, like the kind of uh, she can get done in one poem what it takes me a two and a half hour play to get done she sort of has an extraordinary ability to compress a tremendous number of ideas and emotions into uh into uh, a 16 17 line poem it's really a kind of a breathtaking thing my father writes a lot of talks on medicine he tries to make them you know really entertaining uh, uh but in in depth as well so i definitely grew up around a lot of writing happening and a lot of reading happening and were you encouraged to write um, oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, when I was a little kid, I, I discovered Doctor Who around age seven or eight because uh, it came on right after the um, the children's programming on PBS. So I, I decided I was going to write science fiction. I, I wrote a ton of short stories. They were, they were bald faced ripoffs of Doctor Who episodes. They were exactly <laughs> like Doctor Who episodes. But you know, I think my parents were like, at least well, at least he's writing stuff. Sure. At least he's spending a lot of time. Did you have um, siblings? Yes, uh, my sister Sarah is one year younger than me. Uh, uh, my brother Josh is uh, three years younger than me. Uh, uh, Sarah is a, a, a physician in, in uh, Seattle. Josh is in North Carolina, um, and uh, uh, you know they, they all uh, um, um, they all have. Uh, we all we all sort of have different interests. Uh, um, uh, the joke I sort of tell is that uh, as you d- go in the descending order of the Rogers siblings. Uh, each one is smarter than the last one and less glib than the last one. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Sarah and Josh are both amazingly smart and um, and a lot less surfacey in their intelligence than I am. I, I sort of uh, I sort of I sort of learn. I learn enough things so that I can kind of go out and kind of be glitzy and impressive to people if I possibly can be, because I'm always thinking about the the end point when I'm going to share whatever it is that I'm working on. They both have this sort of ability to kind of work doggedly on something till they learn it all the way to the bottom, and they kind of don't care about getting a lot of compliments for it. Um, <laughs> You're <and> very self-aware. <laughs> they have a, yeah, I mean, there's sort of no point in in not, sort of knowing you know yeah exactly like, like who you are what you are whatever they could they um and and you definitely learn a lot about who you are from sort of observing how different you are from other people uh um and i am very conscious of the fact that um 
that a lot of the people who really make the world go round are people who sort of are able to kind of push away a lot of the world's noise and dig really deep into something and just work on it on a really long time without kind of imagining how awesome the end point will be and how everyone will admire them when they get to the end point. Um, I'll tell you a, a big uh, 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 current example uh, of that is that I, I, I've come to know a fair number of people who um, pay a lot of attention to state and local elections. Mm-hmm. Most of us are incredibly fixated on presidential elections because they're really dramatic. They attract a lot of really eccentric characters. They, um, we kind of project a lot of ourselves onto um, them. And talking about them on social media gets you instant response, gets you instant. Um, uh, but that's really only a sliver of the story of American governance and, um, and sort of how to improve things for all kinds of people in this country on a day-to-day level. Um, if you want to do that through politics, then you really have to sit down and spend a lot of time paying attention to state and local elections. Uh, that's that's not glitzy at all. If you post something uh, uh, about you know uh, uh, your state rep on Twitter, no one will fave it. Uh, uh, nobody will. Um, uh, but that dig, that really gets into the meat of like what of what affects a lot of people's lives and the people i've come to know who sort of sit down and studiously uh, attend to that and become active in that um um the world needs a lot of those people and a lot of those people generally tend not to be attracted to showbiz mm-hmm. there's kind of an uh, a thing about us in showbiz where um we um since we're always pushing towards the production, you know, um, um, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard for us to think about like projects where you just put your head down and just dig into it for years. Um, uh, that's sort of alien to the culture of it. Um, uh, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Showbiz wouldn't work if we didn't think that way, but I think it's also important that we in showbiz continue to sort of honor and, um, pay attention to the findings of these people who are willing to sort of devote themselves to longer study and advocacy uh, with much less promise of gratification or reward. You mentioned that you discovered sci-fi and the world of genre TV and writing when you found Doctor Who on TV. Yes. How did you get exposure to theater and playwriting as when you were young <laughs> my uh uh my mom noticed that i memorized things really fast mm-hmm. uh um it, it, it was a slight inhibitor to me learning how to read because you know, she would read children's books to me um and uh like she'd read a page and then i was supposed to read a page back to her and i would say the page back to her and it seemed like i was reading and then she knows i wasn't looking at the words i had just memorized the lines she oh, was wow. saying to me <laughs> uh uh and so she was like, okay, you should, um, you should audition for children's theater. Uh, and there's a, there's a good children's theater company in, in Greensboro. Um, I remember the first production I did was, it was actually a, a full on community theater production of Oliver, which was children and adults. I was a urchin. My one line in the whole play was an old man's hat in the middle of the song. Be back soon. Um, <laughs> I remember how crushed I was I, I, when I found out what role I had. I was like, I was like sitting upstairs weeping, and my mom was like, well, "She said, well, they're not going to give you a big giant role on your. They need to make sure you're not going to just go on stage and wet your pants." Um, <laughs> so I was already an egomaniac, the very first thing I auditioned for. 
It's just, um, uh, uh, it's just, just appalling. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I, I did children's theater for a number of years, and um, uh, and I guess it was basically inevitable that those interests were going to come together in some kind of a way. Uh, and it came together in my church uh, that I grew, I grew up in a Unitarian church, sort of a free worship church. Um, uh, some of the locals in Greensboro thought that we were devil worshippers because we weren't explicitly Christian or Jewish or That's pretty Muslim. extreme for Greensboro. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, we we like it was sort of since since we were we, since we were not claiming to be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or anything else or whatever, it's, it must have seemed like we were hiding something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but um, uh, but anyway, they. The, um, so it's sort of a very open, creative, like artistic church without any particular dogma. And uh, once a year, the church youth group uh, took over the congreg took over uh, for one service on a Sunday. And uh, uh, in order to fill the time, I wrote. I think I started by like writing a skit, then something longer, then something longer, then something longer. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a great audience to. Um, uh, it's it's a terrific audience to make your first playwriting mistakes in front of. Sure. Uh, uh, they are very forgiving. Very very forgiving. Um, and uh, uh, so, and and I did my first like one acts in full lengths in front of that church congregation. And this is in high school age. This is or? Yeah, high school age. Yeah okay. yeah. Um, uh, uh, so I, yeah, so I started writing plays that were up to two hours long, you know, like, uh, uh, in high school, they were hideously bad, but you know, whatever I was 17. Um, then I, I went to, uh, I, I went to UNC Chapel Hill for college okay. and they have a student run lab theater there. Um, that, uh, uh, all, everything is, I mean, the, um, there's a little, a little bit of oversight from faculty, but pr- principally it's student run uh, uh, student directed, um, uh, uh, and you and you could put up a play about any subject as long as there wasn't nudity. You could do any play, um, and uh, uh, so I could write plays about anything I wanted, which is such catnip to an 18, 19 year old uh, uh, guy who, was, who really wants to be transgressive, you know, write <laughs> curse words into plays and talk about sex or whatever. And uh, the first one went really well. And as they, as they continue, you know, within the context of the small, you know, college community, as they continue to go well, I, I went completely out of control. The plays got longer and longer and longer and more and more punishingly personal, more and more sort of exhibitionist uh, uh <laughs> Uh, in their nature because there was sort of like no check on me as long as I kind of delivered, you know, big plot points and big emotions and whatever and stuff like that. And, uh, then, you know, then I would know that they were at least going to go over pretty well. And, uh, uh, so I basically learned a lot about sort of like sort of some of the big effects of playwriting, but without any of the discipline. When I got to New York, the very first play I did with New York, the very first play that Gideon Productions put up was an almost three-hour play that was extremely autobiographical. They had really, really long direct address monologues, and uh, uh, and it completely tanked. I mean, partly because nobody knew who we were. We stupidly rented four weeks, which you should never do if you're new to New York. And you should. Uh, 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 and this is in 2000. 2000. Yes. Um, this play was called Dirty Juanita. It was about a. It was about a very odd sort of domestic violence relationship between two straight male roommates, and uh, they were played by Sean Williams, Gideon Bruce, and and myself. We played them, and there was another character played by Judy Alvarez, and um, uh, and and. Um, 
we rented four weeks at a theater that I don't think exists anymore. It was the Flatiron Playhouse, and then it was the Native Aliens Theater, and it's mm-hmm. um, it, uh, it was inside an office building. Uh, my gosh, actually not far from here. I think it's between 6th and 7th oh, on wow. 23rd Street. Uh, it was inside an office building, so that the actual room might still be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would involve heavy structural renovation to change it, but um, uh, I, I've not, I haven't heard of a show being performed there in a very long time. Anyway, uh, uh, oh, God, and when, sometimes when people tell me they're starting theater companies, they do not know what they're in for. Or this interview, the babbling I'm doing this interview is nothing compared to what happens when young people say, I'm going to start the theater company self-producing. What tips do you have? Because I can really go off about that because Gideon did so many things wrong at the beginning. So uh, but wait, I want to go back. So you graduate from college, um, UNC Chapel Hill in 99 or 2000 or thereabouts? I would have been, uh, would have been 90. Wait, it would have been 98 because I had to do an extra semester as a terrible student. <laughs> and then I moved to New York I moved to New York sometime in 1998. Early, sorry, Lodo, late 97, I would have gotten out of school. Moved to New York in early 98. Basically had like a lost year and a half where like I didn't leave the, I was just sort of overwhelmed. I didn't leave sure. the house very much. I wasn't writing very but much. Y- did you come to New York with, I'm going to be a playwright. I'm moving to New York. I'm going to start my production company, my theater company. It's called Gideon. I mean, tell me what your thought process was. There. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, uh, no, no, it was it was not that. Def- I mean, there uh, there were a couple of colleagues that, uh, of mine from college that were already here, and that I thought I might be starting a theater company with, but then things changed. That didn't happen. I totally didn't think because I was I was you know I was close with both Jordana and Sean in college oh, before they were a couple. Um, did you meet them in college? Yes, oh, okay. uh, both of them I met at UNC, uh, but uh, we didn't work so close that I, I I would not have remotely guessed that they would end up being like, you know, my lifelong colleagues uh, uh, on the basis that we were, you know, I was definitely good friends with both of them. Um, we hung out a lot, uh, did some shows together, um, but uh, uh I, I would not have guessed that. Uh, but then sometime after that, uh, uh, some years after college, uh, you know, um, uh, um, Sean and Jordana became a couple, I guess, uh, I guess 99. Boy, I'm going to be embarrassed if I've gotten that wrong uh, when they're listening to this. Um, uh, and then Sean um, uh decided to move to New York and it was Sean it's, it's always Sean uh, it was Sean who was really pushing us to be to form a theater company and do a play I'd written this script Dirty Juanita and he was like well let's do theater company let's let's do this uh, Gideon Productions has all has throughout our history sort of been defined by the kind of synthesis between me and Jordana's sort of more we we, we call it our Jewishness our, our, our sort of our desire to um, our desire to be cautious and sort of be afraid that calamity is coming just around the corner and be very sort of prudent in our choices and not to sort of brag about anything we don't 100% know is true and then Sean's bravado and Sean's confidence <laughs> and Sean's belief that we should just like, we should just say that we're doing it and then we're going to figure out how it's going to how it'll work out like while we're doing it and uh, um, and it, it's been a real object lesson in the limits of prudence as a virtue. Prudence is a virtue, but it won't work all by itself. Bravado is important. 
and but I really checked by some prudence also dangerous. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Great counterbalancing forces you guys have. And that's and that's been a, a real definition of how of how Gideon is worked. I mean, a big part of you know like why we decided to start in the first place. Why I think a big part of why we stayed alive during some of the really lean years, um, and uh, uh, and why um, and why we decided to do the Honeycomb trilogy. Because bear in mind, like the, 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 the way things panned out, the first several years of Gideon Productions is exactly is exactly the script for a theater company that some college kids put together when they get to New York. Uh, they do a couple of shows. It's way too hard. Their spirits are crushed, and the company falls apart. All all of those things happened. I do not know why we didn't why we didn't disband. Uh, uh, why we didn't fall apart? Like we had we had the shows that virtually nobody attended. We had we had uh, 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 you know um, we had we were completely ignored by the media until uh, until our first friend show uh, 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 in two thousand five. Um, we we uh, um, uh, like like uh, it was just so much work, and so little and, and like. And nothing was happening. We all we we even had some utterly unique things happen. I I had a, we were about to go into rehearsal in a play of mine uh, that I wrote uh, uh, called Mercurial uh, in two thousand one. We were about to, we were in we were we'd done the first rehearsal on like September 9th, two thousand one, uh, and the a big part a big plot point in the second act of that play is a terrorist attack on New York. Uh, oh uh, so we had to we were we were all set to go cast everything. And a theater rented for four weeks. We'd learned nothing. We had a theater rented for four weeks. Um, uh, 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 and uh, uh, we were all set to go. And um, um, there's absolutely no way that we could have put that play on. Uh, that play will never that play will never go up. But um, and we ended up using the time. We sort of put to, so we couldn't get out of our arrangement with the theater. So we ended up doing a, a sort of a fundraiser for Ground Zero Relief, just bringing in a ton of different performers. And I wrote a, a real quickie full length play that 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 we did. Um, uh, 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 that was sort of about slight, very slightly about uh, 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 9-11. It was it was inspired by a news story I read about. There was a couple that had their wedding all planned for that following weekend. I don't know what they eventually decided to do, but the, the article was about they were trying to they they put all the a huge deal together for the Saturday following the Tuesday. Um, and so I basically wrote a play about people in a in a similar situation and whether the, whether or not the wedding should um, should go ahead. And uh, uh, I wrote it real fast. I wrote it in a week, and, and we did it for the final week of the rental that we had there. Uh, um, so we were able to come away from it not penniless. But I remember one of the acts that we brought in to be a part of it. I remember one very few people came out to the theater at all. I mean, first of all, nobody nobody wanted to go to downtown Manhattan. Um, but secondly, uh, it was one night we had we had. The whole group showed up. They set up their play, and zero people came. Like absolutely no one came. Uh, it was and uh, um, and it was it was re- it was really you know uh, a lot of those early years two two thousand to say two thousand four is like um, we we had some things that were creatively fulfilling, but we we couldn't make a dent. Um, and this is the biggest thing when I when I find myself talking to younger people, which is so weird to say. <laughs> you get old so fast you don't notice it happening. But, uh, but like uh, I I now find myself from time to time being called upon to speak to younger people. Uh, well, I actually wanted to ask you about that because you have taken on, and I say this with like no offense at all, but like this grandfatherly role in the indie theater community in New York City, <laughs> where you have this kind of like voice of reason of encouragement and i'm speaking mostly on twitter which is where i encounter theater in new york sure, 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 of course, of the yeah. theater. but it's interesting to 
to to see you like a, a a person who's a part of the indie theater community and still producing with your own company and still you know putting your reputation and financial resources on the line to create your own work and yet also to be the voice of reason speaking from so much experience i mean you've been at this now for 16 years in new york city that's a remarkable run for an indie theater artist so i just wanted to ask how you view yourself in that role. <laughs> well, it's, it sort of snuck up on me so fast I didn't see it happening, but I started seeing things where like people going like, hey, Matt, could I ask you for a few pointers? Uh, on a couple of occasions, I've been asked to come in and speak to classes. Uh-huh. And I remember this, the, the shock of the first time that happened. I was sort of like, well, I'm still basically a student, right? I'm like a couple <laughs> of years out from being a student. And then I did the numbers, counting nope, on my fingers. No, that was a long... <laughs> um, and part partly, I think that I'm actually kind of a bad example of that because I have, did, as you said, I've been doing theater in New York since 2000. Um, I have never had an agent. Uh, um, I only just recently uh, uh, I, I got um, I got my first uh, I, I got I got published by uh, Samuel French with the Honeycomb Trilogy, but that took you know, uh, and I've had some online publication before. I've had you know some stuff on indie theater sure. now, um, uh, uh, but but I've had very little in the way of, very little in the way of out of town productions, um, and uh, uh, and I've made very little money. Uh, uh, in fact, getting into audio more recently is is where I've made the first my first significant money at, at writing and so in a lot of senses i'm like well actually i'm, I'm kind of not what younger people should be aspiring to be because um uh they'd probably like some of that stuff to happen for them sooner i remember saying that i was speaking to a class uh, a few months ago and i said listen you uh, one thing i'm going to tell you guys straight up no matter how low you set your expectations for how long it's going to take to make a debt, you're still going to be disappointed. It's like, it will take a long time. You guys have no idea how many setbacks there are. You have no idea how many setbacks happen like after like five good things happen. You're like, well, now, now the good things are just a boulder rolling down a hill. But no, that's not true at all. Um, it takes a really, really, really long time to make a dent, especially when you don't have, I've, when you don't have professional connections like I don't. Uh, and that's another reason is I didn't go to grad school. I'm not sure I should be talking to playwrights, uh, um, I'm not sure that I'm a good example because I probably made a dreadful mistake not not going to grad school, at least career-wise. <laughs> I really didn't want to go. I didn't want to be mentored in my way towards finding a voice. I've always really, really known what I wanted to do. And at the point, and when I got to the point where I started realizing that maybe I made a big mistake not going to grad school, not like sort of um, getting that pedigree and getting those connections and stuff like that, when I started to think that maybe I made a really big mistake, I was already deep, deep into defining what sort of playwright um, uh, I I wanted to be, and there was sort of was sort of no turning back. I had sort of stopped being a malleable creature that could be formed and channeled because I I I, I really aggressively. It dug a groove and I knew what I wanted to do like I, I I didn't I didn't have any hesitation about being branded a genre playwright that doesn't feel like a like a like a box that I'm being put in because when I think of like my next 15 ideas they're all genre ideas mm-hmm. it's what I want it's not a uh, so I mean I guess what I think about it is um, I I love being able to tell somebody something helpful where I can I'm dubious about my genuine uh, legitimacy in terms of giving people advice because probably people shouldn't run their careers the way that I have. Uh, but um, 
by the same token, anything I can say that will help somebody. And every once in a while, I've given a piece of advice either about playwriting or about or about navigating in theater that 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 has been helpful. And and I'm always glad when I, I when I am able to do that. I find myself sort of with the older with the older guys like combination of bafflement and admiration and concern about sort of the younger generation of players who are coming up. Like I am actually feeling that feeling. Um, what I I what I most what I most admire is bound up in what I'm most concerned about. And you can't be you can't be an old guy. You can't be an Andy Rooney esque fading old guy like me unless you unless there's something about these young people that you're that you're you know <laughs> that you're oh, they, 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 they don't appreciate blah 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 or whatever. Uh, my version of that is tied into what I most admire. When I look at, at, at younger playwrights that I know and that I interact with on social media whose shows I go to see. What I really really admire is they're unashamed bravado their unashamed ability to say i'm awesome and you should 100 percent come to my show like it's, it's bonkers if you don't come to my show i'm fierce i'm a badass you see those terms over and over again yeah. um um without question you should come to my show because i'm amazing i'm a beast i will completely you know i i'm 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 on my way to conquering the world and this is your quickly fading chance to jump on this train <laughs> um i have never in my life been able to say that um but where I am concerned is that I'm I am a little worried that the advent of social media and the the pervasiveness of social media I do find myself worried that the humiliation of Dirty Juanita the humiliation of how badly that show did not work and completely failed to attract audiences and completely failed to please the audiences who did show up and and bear in mind like I said a direct address audience nothing teaches you a lesson like looking into the eyes of the people that you were boring. <laughs> Um, I was shattered by that. But, and, and by knowing it was all my fault. I wrote the script. I was one third of the cast. Everybody else did what they could, but what could they do? This is, this was, you know, this thing. This is what it was. I had to go home and think for a long time about how I could have screwed up so badly. And a big part of you, uh, I was like, uh, it was, I had to come to the shocking realization that my life was probably not super interesting to very many people. Uh -huh. It's very interesting in my head. It's probably somewhat interesting to my wife. It's probably somewhat interesting to my family. But uh, uh, you, you go too many circles out, there's no interest whatsoever. Um, and uh, I do worry, and I, I completely reconfigured what I did as a playwright. I, I started liking playwriting better as a result of that. I... I, I um, audiences started liking my stuff better i started building audience a lot better um and all the things i've gotten are because of that humiliation and the the big retooling that i did afterwards i do worry that the advent of social media the pervasiveness of social media kind of makes it a lot harder to have a really educational humiliation uh, that's my version of we walked uphill both ways to school um uh, uh is i, I the, the, the Everybody wants to support each other, and that's a beautiful thing. Everyone wants, you know, get online and praise people's shows or whatever. And um, uh, uh, it, it is, even if you have low attendance and middling reviews, or you don't attract the media's attention at all, it's still possible to feel like a huge winner because you can go onto a website where and read words that look like newsprint of people sort of extolling your virtues. Um, it's a. I think it is harder now to have a brutal life-changing humiliation and uh uh and since i found my brutal life-changing humiliation so valuable in retrospect i do worry that that's an important tool that younger playwrights are no, no longer have access to sort of in the era of mutual validation uh but by the same token it's really hard for me to begrudge 
that they have so, so much of a warmer, more supportive environment happening, and that there's so much more of a feeling that people out there care. Uh, there's so much more to be said on this topic. I think we'll have to have you back for a round table on how to start a theater company in New York City. I'm sure people want to hear more about that. I'd love to talk about that. But I would be remiss and also let down some of my contributors and listeners if I did not ask you about the message. Ah, okay. So how did you get involved in that project? Um, okay, well, uh, I've been involved um, doing stuff with Slate for a number of years. Um uh, Dan Coyce, who's the culture editor there, uh, he and I went to, he was at UNC at the same time I was, and we did a lot of theater stuff together, just like with Sean Jordan. We've all uh, uh, sort of remained close every once in a while. He brings me in for a one-off to write something for Slate on a subject, that, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's a theater-based thing or, uh, or especially a Doctor Who-based thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, 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 he joked that editing my Doctor Who columns taught him that he can edit a column even if he understands none of the substance of it. <laughs> he sent me back a marked-up, thing you know that would make the structure of it much better but he said like he said i think this will make your column better but i don't understand one word of what you are talking about here um and uh, uh but anyway so you would bring me in for one-offs where it was something that i uh, uh but then you know podcasts started catching on in a big way and mm-hmm. i think slate started noticing that they were getting uh, big traffic for their podcast enough to justify you know a freestanding podcast network which is what panoply was and mm-hmm. i know that panoply was looking for branded uh, uh content to sort of help pay the bills um uh, they were looking for podcasts that they could create I- in collaboration with with big brands and that ge and by extension their uh, their advertising agency bbdo were interested in a scripted podcast like a uh, um they would they would uh, have the faux podcast feeling to it um they wouldn't go all the way to being full-on radio drama but it, it would continue to maintain the shape of a, of a podcast the spirit of a radio play uh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. They, they, they were, there was a lot of th- there was a lot of discussion of like the Orson Welles War sure. of the Worlds, uh, or there was uh, serial meets aliens in terms mm-hmm. of uh, 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 or serial with aliens as the as, as the um, as kind of the logline of it. Um, and Dan and Dan uh, heard about this happening because he's involved with Panoply. Someone he he, sure. he pushed me. He said you said you should check this guy out. He writes serial science fiction plays and he writes branded content by by day. You know, uh, uh, for for his day job, I write a lot of um, Facebook and Twitter updates for for big companies. Uh, uh, a job I got because of playwriting because um, the people who hired me wanted to make sure that I could have like I could create strongly differentiated voices for each mm. brand um, uh, and, uh, and uh, when, of course one of the central challenges in playwriting is always making the characters not sound like each other sure. um, and uh, so I, I was sort of able to present myself to Panoply as like I have a lot of expertise and experience in both sides of what you're trying to do here uh, uh, so, uh, and, and, and I basically shows and, um, I'm like, I'm ready to go. I remember production got, uh, moved up for, uh, various reasons. And I was basically like, I will start writing right now. I was really hungry. Um, and, uh, it actually turned out to be ex- very different from the experience I was expecting. I was like, I sort of had a little talk with myself ahead of my time. I was like, this is not a play. I don't have the copyright. You know, I don't have final say. I'm going to be getting notes from 50 different people. This is just going to be a project of, of synthesis that I'm going to have to just try to survive as best I can. That actually turned out to be really untrue. I got notes from the panoply side of people. They, they, said some, they had some script notes, but nothing that was like completely shattering what I was trying to do. And then almost none 
from uh, from you know the other side. Uh, Which they, would be they, your fear, right? Right. So, like I really thought. I mean, and when I signed on, I was like, well, you know, I mean, I understand that this is essentially going to be you know a commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was not at all what they wanted. I mean, what with the the input from the 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 branding side from the corporate side was just. Um, they, they wanted to make sure that the story was going to celebrate the idea of innovation as a response to crisis, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, clever, innovative problem solving. They wanted that to come up a lot. But it was at, they were actually the ones pruning back the mentions of GE in the story. Um, and by the time all was said and done, GE was actually not mentioned in the story at all. Yeah, I don't recall a single um, reference. Uh, there, there was one character. Uh, my thought had been that the character who emerged late in the series, Dr. Kalpanis Singh, um, that she would be a GE uh, uh, employee, and then we've just mentioned it once, and then any cool thing she did that would get to be uh, uh, um, on GE's credit. But uh, but then they even removed the specific name of her employer. Mm. Um, it was just enough for it to be branded as GE Podcast Theater, yeah. and uh, um, and and basically just to put forth that they wanted to celebrate the idea of of, of innovation and creative problem solving. Um, so weirdly, I was almost left alone to kind of write. You know, a Mac Rogers dorky sci-fi radio drama. Um, I was really kind of stunned at, at the degree to which I was, I was allowed to do that. I was stunned at the degree I was allowed to do things by having, you know, um, uh, 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 you, you know, by, by by having sort of a, a gender queer character in it. But that I was able to have sort of a the the the, the final twist that I had. Uh, um, I was I was very surprised that. The kind of were no eyes batted at those things, um, uh, and uh, um, and ended up sort of being an enormously fulfilling creative experience. And by far, by far, no comparison, the most popular thing of mine that has ever existed. It said uh, last I heard uh, uh, four million downloads worldwide, and so far more people have been exposed to the message. No, not even any comparison to anything else I've ever written. And how did that impact you having something become so wildly popular? Um, it was crazy in a way. I mean, obviously, I, in a lot of ways, I would have wished that would have happened way earlier in my life. But on another way, I kind of realized that I'm sort of equipped to handle things now that I maybe wasn't used to. When what I was talking about before, about how you can't be properly humiliated in a social media age. Well, when, when it's not a play... When it's a mass media thing, because that, that thing I was saying only refers to plays where only a small circle of people can even get in the room mm-hmm. to see it. When it's, a, when, it's, when it's a mass media thing that can be widely distributed, then lots of people write about it online who have no connection to you whatsoever and are not your friends. Um, um, and I, I was able to sort of like search the Internet and go around and read a lot of talk about the message from people who had no connection to me whatsoever, people who would never want anything from me whatsoever. They, I, I, and I... I I remember I came across uh, a post on Tumblr where the, the headline was, the end of the message is smelly butts. And it, was a, <laughs> and it was a rant about how stupid the end of the message is. And I remember looking at it and thinking, like, you know what, I am so grateful. If I, if I had gotten to write the message when I was, say, I don't know, was 24, let's say, and I ran across the end of the message of smelly butts, I would have taken to bed. I would have been <laughs> devastated by that. I would have been calling up my friends and saying, this person does not understand what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Instead, I was like, because I think uh, uh, I think the person, like whoever it was, they, they, they're based somewhere very far away. Uh, they, they, I, was like, I was like, 
this I was like somebody who who will never meet me our paths will never cross for any potential reason is writing about a thing I wrote passionately engaged they were let down by the ending uh, uh, you, you can't be let down by the ending unless you had some investment in the middle uh, uh, like uh, you you have to remember that when you're eliciting strong feelings as a writer a lot of those are going to be bad feelings you're going to get a lot of bad stuff written about you if your stuff is out there and every time you start to feel bad every time you start to feel self-pitying about bad stuff being written about you it's really really helpful if you have a bunch of years under your belt where nobody cared where it was just you put stuff out you know your good friends came and saw it and then otherwise it was deafening silence there was no media there was no uh, uh, attention being paid no sort of larger cultural awareness of it whatsoever when you've had some of that then you know how valuable it is that anybody cares about your stuff. Uh, and so I was able to go on Twitter. I was able to go on Tumblr. I was able to go on different places and see you know, some really awful critical uh, things uh, written about the message and be, I mean, it's never pleasant to read a critical thing about what you wrote, but, but it was just like a, like a little sting, like the, just like the needle when the doctor's giving you, the dentist is giving you the anesthetic, for, just, just like a little sting followed by a lot of gratitude. And so there was, I was like, I learned, it's like, oh, this is a really interesting thing. Sometimes if it takes a little longer, you're kind of better at handling stuff. Um, and uh, um, I loved the experience. I'd love to write a lot more audio, um, uh, and I'm in discussions on a couple uh, in a couple of different fronts about uh, about creating more audio. And I think you're going to hear a lot more audio coming from me uh, in the next uh, two years. Fantastic! I think that's good news. People will be excited to hear that. Yeah. So I, I hope. I hope. Uh, yeah. It's it's a tremendously fun form to write for. Well, I think we're going to end it there. I'm, oh, that, fantastic. that is such a wonderful way of looking at criticism and such a fantastic view of your career and how things have ultimately accrued to your benefit, even though it took a really long time to get there. I found that like when you were speaking about how you felt about those people saying those things, I don't know that, I mean, that's actually fairly moving advice. Oh, great, great! And I hope that it I hope that it that it helps somebody. I mean, it's, nothing beats writing stuff that's worth talking about. Uh, no, nothing beats knowing that you wrote something that makes a stranger want to talk about it. Uh, uh, and um, uh, the, and because for a very long time, I just simply clearly wasn't doing that. So um, uh, I would say, you know, um, uh, to everybody, they take criticism to stride and you know, be be really grateful to be part of the conversation. I would say. Wonderful. Well, thanks for coming. Thank you so much, Fred. This was really great fun. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd be forever grateful if you would leave a rating and review for Max Moo on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can find us all, including Mac, on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu, M-A-X-A-M-O-O. Mac is at Mac Writes. That's M-A-C-W-R-I-T-E-S. And I'm at Lindsay Barons, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. We'll see you soon. Theatrical Media.